This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. I'll start off by saying thank you. You're very kind to stay up past 9 p.m. to deal with me. So that's an honor. Uh, the second thing is that you found the perfect setting to do this episode. I haven't had a better background yet. This very lovely wall, this very intimate setting with the light. This is how every episode should be done. And maybe I should be sitting where you're sitting. It should be flipped in reverse. We met years ago on a different way of storytelling, different form of storytelling that I do, with my Walk Beirut tour, and that your parents joined in, in 2012. So I'm happy that you saw me in my better form years ago. I have expired since. You look the same, so that's fine. It's me that's kind of falling apart. <laughs> and, and also that you uh, decided to do this episode in Mina. So you're the first person that I've interviewed in Mina. I've interviewed... I'm shocked. And I'm saying Mina specifically for you, because I've interviewed many people in Tripoli. But you're the first in Mina, that distant land that everyone in Tripoli has never heard of, that sort of remote part of the world just down the street. So thank you for doing that and for doing this episode in a place that you're sort of contributing to, that you're a part of. Aristos and Mina. So I want to start there, maybe a happier story, a more sort of lighter subject. Tell me about this place. Uh, remind me what it used to be before you took it over and just the vibe of Mina right now. Because Mina for me is where I go every time I'm in Tripoli. I go straight to Mina. So just what Mina is like Thursday evening. So Mina has, I think, for a long time been a bit of a refuge uh, for the whole area of mm. Tripoli. It's uh, the one of the rare places where you have uh, a row of small pubs uh, and restaurants. It's quite cozy. Uh, and so I was certainly drawn to it uh, when I first came up here. Uh, a lot of people even from uh, originally from around here who don't actually live here might not even know it exists. Mm -hmm. uh, so Basically, I got involved uh, with a small side project, doing uh, experimenting to try and see if wine would work. Ah, okay. And uh, on a street that's usually goes for hard alcohol <laughs> yeah. and uh, <laughs> and maybe beer. Uh, and the idea was to focus on Lebanese wines mm. uh, because you could always get kind of random deals on French wine or Spanish wine. At Spinneys. Uh, and usually the go-to would be Kassara or Kifreya, right. which are kind of the mass market wines. 
uh, the Budweiser of wines of Lebanon. <laughs> oh, really? What wow. would be the mass market wine in the U.S. right now? The the barefoot <laughs> the barefoot one, whatever it is. Um, I might steal that comparison from you. I've never heard Jack, this one. Do they still have that? I don't. Um, <laughs> Sure. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting a bit local from the U.S. end. Sure. Uh, but long story short, the idea was to focus on just the amazing uh, diversity of Lebanese wine. Um, and people might have an idea in their head that it's more expensive uh, to go for a wine that's not mass market. Uh, but that's not really the case. Uh, so we're kind of focusing on this this local uh, you know, gift, uh, before all of this started and now going local is not, uh, you know, a luxury. It's, yes. that's the name of the game right now. And one of my uh, recent stories, my, from my day job as a journalist was about the struggles of uh, the beverage industry in Lebanon. And basically in a country coming to terms with how much is actually imported uh, and maybe assembled in Lebanon, but not made in Lebanon. Right. So for example, the wine, uh, the cork is from abroad, the glass bottle is from abroad. In many cases, the label is printed abroad. Yeah. Uh, and so while the grapes are Lebanese, uh, that, that's still a, you know, about 30% of the components from outside right. uh, and necessitating foreign currency uh, for uh, beer, for example, it's even more because the wheat mm -hmm. is from outside, stuff inside the bottle also needs to come from outside. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be getting into the economic situation. Basically, you know, everybody in the country, whether, you know, a business owner, consumer, it's coming to terms with the reckoning over how much comes from outside and has demanded dollars and how little local production there is, uh, which is going to need to change. And there's no immediate quick fix, you know, to this kind of thing. Sure. So it's, it's a painful reckoning right now because prices have to go up, but they can't go up so much as to alienate the customer base. Right. Uh, so this is what so many uh, businesses are struggling with now in Lebanon. And I would say most of them are just trying to keep their heads above water. You know, Alison, I'm going to jump ahead a bit only in that I'm going to refer to your Asia Times pieces. And, and one in particular that you, that you actually just mentioned, uh, Lebanon's beverage makers seek survival revival which was, I think, just really two weeks ago or so, two and a half weeks ago it was released. And I'm, before we get sort of too deep in the political and economic catastrophe we're witnessing, I'm, I'm just curious about your, your involvement right now in this pub. How long have you been involved yourself? Since November. So, so uh, after the protests began, you, you yes. became... So I, the reason I'm curious about the exact time frame is I know Mina uh since since mono was happening now i'm this is sort of dating myself and probably dating anyone who's uh, who's listening and maybe dating you too i don't know mono we're talking 20 years ago some 15 20 years ago when mono was really happening and then mm -hmm. mina became mino sort of mono's sort of younger sibling 
and I would have so many fun nights in Mina. And I mean, I just th th that little street used to be so packed with with locals and with sort of Lebanese from all over Lebanon, as well as tourists. It was very it was very buzzing. That's quite some time ago. And ever since, I've just seen places closing over time. And, and on occasion, a, a place or two will reopen only to shut down. So I'm, I'm curious about your own personal commitment to this place. What, what made you in November sort of do something that is quite Lebanese, if I, if I can say, become a part owner of a pub? <laughs> what, what made you go that route? Was it, was it the optimism of the moment? Or is it, is it something unrelated that it just happened to ha in, in November that it sort of lined up that way? Because it's, it's a very delicate time in, in recent history. And I think it also is probably the last time I, I vividly remember sincere hope and euphoria all over the country. So I'm just curious about November. What, what took you to Aristos in, in November? Well, a few things. Uh... One of them is I was already, you know, living outside Beirut. I see. Uh, when I moved back from Dubai, where I was working for AFP, one of uh, my main things was I wanted to be kind of outside the bubble as much as possible. Uh, not to say, you know, that there that anyone's living in a bubble, but we tend to gravitate towards Beirut uh, just because it's the capital for journalists that are frequently flying, mm -hmm. usually to report elsewhere, uh, you know, that's the hub, that's where the airport is. Uh, but you also end up going to the same places uh, and also living in a, you know, an area that's not experiencing uh, maybe the same thing as the rest of the country. Just yeah. in, for example, the electricity cuts. When I lived in Ashrafiye, it's three hours a day, mm -hmm. which is maybe the lowest in the whole country. That's changed now. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was certainly, you know, you could you could live differently there. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, kind of get out. And when the protests started in Lebanon, I decided that one of the things I really wanted to do was to not just cover people protesting, <laughs> right. but cover the people who are not protesting. Because I mm. think that's mm. something that sometimes I feel like we forget, you know, even if a good chunk of the population is protesting, mm. who is staying home mm -hmm. and why? Are they supporting it silently, but they can't go? Are they against it? Are they afraid? of instability, you know, what are yeah. these people thinking and feeling? And also to just go outside of the capital to see what are the dynamics uh, in different uh, regions. So my first stop, what I went to was in Baalbek, because I wanted to see what was happening there. Um, because it seemed like if it was going to really be a big change, you know, all areas of the country uh, would be protesting in a big way. Right. What I found was protests, but definitely not uh, everybody coming out en masse, uh, which was something I think important to witness. And then from there, uh, going to, you know, the Bekaa Valley, small villages to check in with uh, 
context there. Yeah. People who were very skeptical and at the time said, you know, these are good people. They want, of course, the politicians are corrupt, you know, but this is all, uh, you know, about timing. This is not in our hands and this is uh, not going to, this is going to benefit uh, America or Israel, for example. And then went over the mountains to the coast to Batroun, which of course is kind of the, the, a big place of support for the ruling uh, mm. at the time, mm. Free Patriotic Movement, the Party of the President, mm -hmm. I guess I should say, because no one really rules in Lebanon, and the Party of the Foreign Minister at the time, Gibran Basile, uh, to also get a feel for that. And it was also kind of a mixed bag. Uh, so that's been kind of my ethos, uh, you know, as I've kind of matured in my journalism career to A, kind of get out of town and, <laughs> and B, uh, yeah, talk to, talk to the people who, who aren't uh, showing up in downtown Beirut and see how they're feeling and thinking. And along the way, you know, when I was going over the mountains, I'm sure you know this uh, artist's road. Uh, that's only open in the spring. Sure. And yeah. I just met, you know, kind of people with whatever, sandwich shops on the side of the road and people who, you know, they were watching it on TV, they were interested, excited, um, but also even from that time when it was so optimistic, very nervous about, you know, what was coming. Uh, and then uh, I had the opportunity to go to Tripoli uh, and Mina, uh, in Mina, I went to check out uh, this place called, uh, it's the Old Khan in Al Mina. Maybe you know it. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah. It's this amazing old Mamluk building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there's all, basically, I think it's the fourth generation of Syrians who came originally from Tartus who have been mm. squatting there for mm. four generations. They're basically Lebanese. Mm. Um, some of them in, have intermarried with Lebanese. Uh, so they got the nationality. The men obviously cannot. Um, just to see how, how they were living uh, and thinking and feeling. And, you know, these are the people, they, some of them don't even have the nationality and they were going right. down to the protests. So, and, you know, people who are just living day by day, they're making fishing nets and selling them for, you know, almost nothing uh, or fishing what they eat. Um, so that's how I kind of stumbled upon Almina, and uh, and no, I, I don't I don't think it was the the protest or the optimism. Mm, I think mm. it was just uh, you know I I love to kind of you know find other ways outside my day job right. uh, to engage with people and this small pub gave me the opportunity to uh, kind of try on another passion of mine, which was uh, Lebanese wine and, uh, and seeing, trying my hand uh, at seeing if I could do a successful wine menu. You know, I'm, uh, go so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just... That's a long story. No, it's, no, but it's a great story and, it's be and I'll add to it in, in sort of my, just thinking out I'm yeah. thinking as you're speaking that um, in all the conversations I've done I think this is the first one where it's almost like um, 
a deliberate attempt to include voices that are not necessarily celebrated given what we've seen the past seven, eight months. And that includes, I don't know if regime supporters is the right word or the right phrase here, but it's just Lebanese that are not fully on board. And they could be skeptical for many reasons. They could be apolitical as well. They could maybe nominally support the protest, but they're not protesting per se. So it's that kind of uh, approach that I, 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 yeah, I think this is the first time, which is good. It's a good thing. And and the other one is when you're describing your, describing your trip around Lebanon and, I mean, this sort of journey to Baalbek, up to Betroun, and then over the Cedars, I mean, one would think that you're traveling the world, right? You're just going one hour and maybe 30 minutes in one direction. But it's a very, very different opinion, a very different way of approaching problems, a very different focus at times. And I think that was the magic of the moment, is that enough people throughout the country saw eye to eye, maybe for the first time. That may have vanished already. But I just like imagining you kind of journeying around the country trying to collect opinions on, on what we've seen. And that you end up in Mina at the end. It's not like yeah. it's not like you went to the airport and flew away. You found you found your home in Mina. And I say this yeah. as somebody who's originally from the north. That uh, no, you 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 chose well. <laughs> you know, wherever you went, even in those early days. I mean, in in Baalbek, for example, when there's you know this small crowd protesting, you go across the street to get Sfeha. And the guy is just rolling his eyes and, you know, at the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, you go to Batroun and someone says, oh, this is nice, but I think that's enough. You know, they, I, I forget what had even happened. But mm. they said, that's nice, that's enough. And then, you know, in, in, in Tripoli even, uh, I went to the, the fish market that's downstairs from the Khan. And some of the fish dealers were just complaining, you know, they were upset because of the roadblocks, because all their big customers were the restaurants in Junier and Jbeil, and they couldn't distribute. So it was interrupting, you know, their work. And, yeah. you know, so many people, uh, especially outside Beirut and Mount Lebanon, are really living day to day. So I think... That's something that, you know, we we have to keep in mind that it's not about supporting, uh, you know, these existing uh, dynasties that uh, control things or not. I think people are pretty, pretty aware and pretty, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think that they're also just very cognizant of what they have to lose. Um, right. And even if it doesn't seem like much, especially when it's, you know, you're just getting by day to day. You know, and there's something else, and I, this may be a nice way to open up the economic sort of story that's at play. Yeah. Um, it, it, I assume that whether you have Baalbek or Tripoli or anything in between, that uh, if they're seeing things eye to eye, it's really on the economic pain. That there's a shared pain in the country and you kind of allude to that that i mean people are living there there it's a very difficult chapter it's a very difficult economic chapter in lebanese history and i i guess you yourself being a small business owner in mina probably seeing it up front that this is really a difficult time to to survive 
so that that's I think a very that's the focus of the story that there's a shared pain beyond that there doesn't seem to be much agreement on anything but let, let's start with the economic pain and your your Asia Times pieces I mean they go back before the protests started they go back to 2018 I'm going to link it up to the episode because I think it's almost like a it's like a diary of everything that went wrong <laughs> leading up to the protest movement and then from October until today it's almost like um, stories that the stories that matter but it's still nothing is going right there's no sort of there's no real hope for political or economic change and I'm just going to introduce a, a small piece that you wrote I think it's maybe last few days ago actually maybe been uh, last week june 30 sorry june 30 lebanon faces abyss as top technocrats jump ship now i got to speak to Henri shaul for the podcast hey. he's one of the okay. two and i'm i'm trying to get alain bifani on as well this is summer of 2020 this is seven eight months since the protest started and the situation seems so bleak and then you have advisors or administrators at the Ministry of Finance who are leaving, who are saying, we can't do it, can't fix it. I'm throwing a big question on you, but I'd like to just maybe gauge your mind on this. And these conversations you're having, whether they're among friends or even sort of on, your, on these trips throughout the country, are you sensing any hope on the horizon? Is there anything that sort of makes you wonder that, okay, things are bad now, but they have to get better at some point? Or is it really as bleak to you as it seems to be to everyone watching and sort of witnessing, not just hyperinflation or, or lines for bread or anything like that, just that there's despair. And it, and it seems to be almost that it's very difficult to shy away from it right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the resignation of those uh, two, uh, Technocrats, I would say they were, you know, also trying to kind of send an SOS. Mm, uh, mm. So I, I think that there, we can't just say it was it was giving up. I, I think it was also, um, you know, trying to send a warning signal and not try to. Uh, yeah. And I think so. I think it was a, you know, a very, um, it was an action. It wasn't, uh, you know, a withdrawal, so to speak. Mm, mm. Uh, as for. As for the situation, um, I think there's two things I want to mention. One is something that uh, a Lebanese colleague, Nina Saidi, pointed out to me, mm -hmm. uh, which was that Lebanese have never uh, depended on the government to do anything for them. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, case in point, the diaspora. Uh, and so you have dire statistics and we can't downplay uh, the impact of prices tripling and quadrupling with no yeah. anchor uh, yeah. to when or no bottom uh, to that in sight. But uh, you have many, uh, you know, from from religious charities to neighborhood initiatives. For example, in Mina, there's a small charity that every day they have a different thing that they give to needy families. One mm. day it's vegetables. Mm. One day it, it might be, you know, the basic grains and whatnot. Um, uh, you have groups that are bundling uh, monthly packages for families, the basics. And I 
and you have a lot of people that never trusted the banks. Uh, I mean, we're talking about wealthier people now Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, have their safes or whatever. Uh, And I think that, you know, there's also not this individualism uh, that we have in in the U.S. where, oh, that's too bad that's happening to you. Um, You know, if, if there's a friend who works in the Gulf, he'll send you money when you need it. Uh, and there's no shame in asking if you have one family member that's making dollars for an NGO, you know, they'll step up and help out the rest of the family. Uh, you know, you don't leave people behind the, the, I mean, the huge issue is that everybody's sinking and that the poorest people that don't have anyone in their network, uh, that has that, you know, kind of capacity. Uh, to absorb this uh, or write it out, those are the people that are really struggling yeah. uh, to put food on the table and get by. Um, and the other thing I want to mention when we talk about, you know, I can't say this is a positive, but it could be the silver lining, which is that now, I mean, for for so long, because of the dollar peg, imports uh, we're basically somehow subsidized yeah, yeah. Uh, by keeping the dollar peg in place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for anyone listening who hasn't been following the situation closely, I mean, that meant you could go to an ATM and withdraw dollars and Lebanese interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how much the economy was dollarized. And that's how much people could count on it. They could make money in Lebanese, put it in a bank account. And then if they were a merchant, whether buying you know, a small salon supplier, importing glass, whatever, they could pay their suppliers in dollars. Uh, Without thinking, that's over. Uh, The government is still, you know, providing the official exchange rate for the most basic uh, commodities like wheat and fuel, supposedly. But if you see our electricity situation right now, you'll know that even that is definitely in peril. and so uh, now it's, there's going to need to be a renewed emphasis on local production. And it's not, that's not something that can happen overnight. It's yeah. going to take years. And it's not going to be easy because no one trusts the banks anymore. And if you want to you know, start a factory or do anything, you usually need financing and you need loans. So <laughs> it's actually... You know, it's it's terrible that the banking sector is uh, in such dire straits and doesn't appear to be, you know, on, on the verge of a, a, a breakthrough as far as restructuring or whatever no. uh, it's going to take uh, to get it back on its feet. Uh, so this is a huge problem because right now, I mean, for example, the beverage story you mentioned, Lebanon doesn't have one glass factory. They have some smaller scale Uh, artisanal things, but there is no factory capable of the mass production that would take which I I always found bizarre actually that that's something that I did not I found out recently and it seemed so so bizarre but I sorry to interrupt you no 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 it's it is it's insane it's insane Uh, yeah but it speaks to how easy it was and how much cheaper it was to get stuff from outside I mean I've met businessmen in Tripoli who 
they used to have factories to make genes. But now if you want to make, you know, kind of the updated models of genes with all yeah. like the laser cuts and whatever, I mean, those machines are hundreds of thousands, maybe a million dollars. Yep. And are you going to have the return when there's six million people in the country? The mm. only way is, and, and add to that, you could export, you have to export uh, to make back your money. But the problem is you're up against countries that have normal electricity that aren't paying double for a generator. Uh, you're up against countries where the industrial sector might be supported by the government. Um, no. So that's why, I mean, there are many reasons uh, why manufacturing uh, is in the state it is. Uh, but I think that now that the lira has sunk so low uh, and now that it's going to, people are realizing it's, they're not going to be able to uh, buy the imported goods like before, yeah. uh, whether it's pampers or glass bottles right. from Europe. You know, there's going to need to be local production, probably in the medium term. They'll be buying from maybe cheaper sources like Egypt or Syria or uh, maybe, um, you know, wherever they can find a deal to get them through this period. Mm. And you have amazing stories of people, you know, how they're <laughs> adapting in the near term where there's a, a winery uh, work with Chateau Hordy, where the guy has been literally cleaning out a recycled, a, you know, old stock of wine bottles by hand yeah. to be able to put his wine in bottles. So those are the kinds of things people are doing uh, to to get through this. But but I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the positive, which is that you know when you're, you're describing these. This, uh, quick ability to help your neighbor or help your friend or your relative or whatever that Lebanese are very good at that maybe maybe too good at that and it reminds me of I mean my my earliest memories of Tripoli are in the mid 1980s so mid 1980s technically the civil war had ended in Tripoli more or less yeah. ended in a very sort of dysfunctional way but the the fighting on the streets had sort had more or less disappeared more or less but I mean, long blackouts, um, hyperinflation, the lira mm. jumped quickly. The lira hit 3,000 lira by the early 1990s before it was stabilized at 1,500. And we didn't have large notes, just had sort of the 50, the 100, and the 250, and we'd roll them up in these rubber bands. Eventually, the 500 was printed and the 1,000 and later. But I mean, it's the same kind of can't trust the local currency and yeah. people were desperate to use other currency and the dollar sort of flooded the market. The unwillingness to even count on anything that, that feels like state authority, knowing that the state back then was, was really in, in, in horrible shape anyway, but even if there was some restructuring, you wouldn't count on it. You wouldn't count on, 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 the, on the government. So you'd count on, on relatives. Abroad, yeah. you'd count on, you'd count on on the population, not not public authority. Yeah, and that back then always seemed to be a necessity because of the civil war years. But we're now thirty years beyond the civil war, and I've had this conversation with with several friends recently that it's just 
there's no fighting on the streets, but other than that, it really reminds me, and I think it reminds many people, of, of the worst years of modern Lebanese history. And that's during the Civil War, just without the fighting. There's a piece that you wrote, uh, I think it's maybe early June. I think, yeah, June 3rd. It's financial civil war pushes Lebanon to the brink. And I started using that quote. I sort of quoted you to friends. I'm like, yeah, it's just, this is a financial civil war. It feels like a civil war. There's no gunshots, but instead money is the weapon, so to speak. And I've sensed this now that it may be too late to curtail hyperinflation and we may see something catastrophic. We may see the lira plunge into something that we just can't control. And that, I mean, 10,000 may be the good old days when we look back. Now, I don't want to sound too bleak here, but, but I'm going to gauge your mind on just what is the way forward to at least stabilizing how bad we are right now and not letting things get worse. You know, I, I don't want to go too deep into this because you've had people much more qualified to talk about, you know, the nuts and bolts. But, you know, what I have seen and report on is, you know, of course, the government came up with this plan uh, to try to right the ship, which was basically uh, to take, shave off uh, some money yeah. from the accounts of the people who profited the most uh, from you know, questionable financial practices of the past. Uh, and, and I think Alain Bifani, uh, you know, he he kind of went right into it in his yeah. uh, outgoing interview where he said, you know, we didn't, we weren't asking for that much in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea was that, you know, regular people right now are, are paying the bill and the bulk of the bill you know, after the, the meal for uh, when there's, you know, a few people in the room uh, that can and probably morally should uh, do their part uh, to fix things. Uh, and, and I think there was a lot of people working really hard behind the scenes to get the government to adopt this plan, which I mean, you know, you could say is like a the Peter Pan model or whatever, <laughs> but I is, mean, is that the working phrase for it? I didn't, I've never heard that. I like that though. The Peter Pan model, you know, steal <laughs> from the rich and give yeah, to the poor. And yeah, there yeah. was a lot of, you know, there, there was a lot of controversy of course, because, uh, what the, you know, the banks, uh, argued was that, you know, there are people who've worked their whole lives, whatever in the Gulf, yeah. wherever, to build up their, their life savings and save it and you're gonna shave off their money. And I think what Alain tried to say is no, uh, it's gonna be uh, the really big wigs. Uh, and, and you know, uh, and the alternatives that have been presented, uh, the, the Association of Banks plan, uh, one of the proposals was to basically uh, privatized state assets, you know, naming yeah. specifically the coast, yeah. which is already littered with illegal private resorts and nearly inaccessible uh, to regular people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's till now, nothing's budging. It seems that, and that was why these two uh, uh, 
guys resigned um, because this plan uh, seems to have been uh, made an orphan in the parliament uh, because, um, you know, there's a lot of people with interest in that, in that not happening. Yeah. And, uh, and so here we are where regardless, um, people's accounts are kind of being forcibly converted into lira. You know, I think something like half of the country's savings was in dollar denominated accounts. They thought they were playing it safe by putting it in dollars. Uh, and that turns out not to be true. Uh, so it's a, it's a huge issue because with the kind of defeat of this plan and the, you know, non-action with the IMF, I think the French foreign minister said, you know, nothing is moving yeah. Uh, yeah. the other day or today. Uh, it's, mm. This is a huge problem because if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, um, then that really means there's no anchor for for, for anything. Uh, and yes, the currency could just keep dropping if there's no strategy or plan or, uh, you know, policy in sight. Uh, so right now everyone seems to be kind of sitting around and, uh, looking at each other. But I think we need to realize that there's also people that benefit from this, you know, one man's floor is another man's ceiling. So if you have your money outside the country right now in foreign currency and suddenly the value of everything in the country is dropping uh, and assets are up for sale, mm, uh, mm. you know, I, I'm not saying that it's this, uh, you know, kind of, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like this is a plan, but I mean, it's, it's not necessarily hurting everyone, the situation. But let, oh, so I am. I'm, I hope I got this right. I'm getting from you that that there's a there is a a big political problem that's not yeah. being addressed, and therefore the economic reforms cannot happen. In other words, yeah. it's just sort of waiting. And I like that you mentioned. You know, you have so many great pieces that I've been reading the last few months. I'm just going to cite another one: uh, Lebanon's troubled banks set sites on state assets. And I actually did not know the figure that there's a forty billion dollar uh, estimate there and that the banks are even proposing this to begin with if, if there's no political reform in the country is that almost the last resort that this is the way to quote save a sinking ship even though it's the worst way possible it'll disfigure Lebanon permanently but that's short of reform that's all that's left I, I from what my conversations with economists and bankers, it's not even necessarily viable. Mm, mm. That $40 billion figure, uh, it was put there with very, almost no detail. Mm. Uh, who valued anything at that? What assets are on the table? I mean, you have all these assets that are in the red, the electricity company for one. Yeah, um, right. Middle East is barely breaking even. So who says they're worth what they say they're worth? Mm. Uh, who would, in, who would want to buy a piece of the coast right now when 90% of the sewage gets <laughs> dumped off the coast untreated? Right. I mean, let's be a little bit realistic. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't even know if that 
is a saving grace. I mean, they also talk about the gold that Lebanon has. Yeah, right. Uh, it seems like everyone in parliament is on the same page mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. at a, avoiding kind of an accounting, an audit from the outside, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, other, of course, uh, you know, Hassan Nasrallah mentioned China, uh, you know, would be interested to do projects. And even here in Tripoli, as you probably know, uh, yeah. there was a lot of hope that yeah. China would um, would invest big, yeah. uh, especially in the port, uh, in a train uh, connection yeah. between Lebanon and Syria, and that, you know, the Syria reconstruction one day uh, would benefit Tripoli, uh, which has, you know, kind of been left behind out of a lot of things. But with the, I mean, with the Caesar sanctions, you can really forget that. Uh, and uh, somebody, Sybil Risk, the policy director at Kuluna Irada, yes, yes. Uh, she made the point that whether it's the IMF or China, yeah, it, Lebanon need, needs uh, to need be a functioning able to state. As yeah. one hand. Right, exactly. And right now, that doesn't exist. You know, that reminds me of when the, uh, the Turkish government, with all its problems, but it's sort of maybe a similar sort of negotiating strategy the Chinese would use. And the Turks in 2000 and uh, this may have been 2005, all the way to 2008 or so. It lasted for a few years that they were there's even a plaque there's a plaque at Tripoli's train station sort of thanking the Turkish government for an inauguration that the Turks were going to reestablish the link from Tripoli all the way to Istanbul and, and beyond it never happened but there's it's even like a, there's a ribbon and there's a ceremony and all that it never happened and yeah of course I mean I fully agree with her uh, with that assessment you need you need to negotiate you need a negotiating partner and I also sense that the resignations are born out of that, that there's just, there's nothing, you can't work with this. There's no negotiation or there's no healthier negotiation here. This is just corruption and, and theft at the end of the day. But that, and, and yeah. also people, some people not feeling the pain. Uh, one, there's an interview that went viral a couple weeks ago. I think it was, I forget the name of the guy. He has this uh, huge foods company they basically make all the chips that are uh -huh. sold in Lebanon. Uh -huh. And he was saying, oh no, Lebanon's still cheap. You know, me and some friends went out, our bill was only 350,000. Uh, you know, beer was like 20,000. I mean, beer used to be, a beer out could be like 6,000, yeah. 5,000. Mm -hmm. uh, so to have somebody saying that on TV, just a total, I don't know what you call it, um, lack of awareness, lack of caring, mm -hmm. uh, does this person have no one in their circle that's hurting at all? Uh, it, it's hard to say, but um, there's definitely people that aren't feeling the pain, uh, so that could be part of it. And yeah, people that, that could stand to benefit from the situation. But so, I, I think we also need to say that, you know, even you know, even wealthy people are going to see their standard of living go down. It's only the super, super rich, I think, that right. are going to be, you but, know. But when you say okay. they're not, not feeling pain, are you referring to just sort of a, 
sort of like an MP who has not been hit directly yet in that sense. It's more like um, they don't feel the need to act yet. Yeah, I don't, I guess they don't feel financial pain. Mm. Uh, mm. So it's really hard. I, it's hard to, to understand, but I think, you know, it's not, of course, it's not just that. It's that you need everybody to be on the same page. Lebanon isn't ruled. Right. It's on an authoritarian state. It's, yeah. you know, it's, there's many different parties, many different interests. That's one of the reasons why Lebanon couldn't unlock these said funds that were, uh, you know, pledged in Paris years ago, mm -hmm. I think about $11 billion, uh, because, you know, a lot of people feel like they couldn't figure out how to divide up the pie. Yeah. Uh, so this is, it's, there's many things uh, at stake here. You know, I enjoyed reading some other pieces that, re that relate to the story, mm -hmm. but they're more, in a way, they're stories that I, I'm not always in tune with, and that includes Lebanese abroad that still have their money stuck in Lebanon. And it's uh, it's a story that I thought, I mean, you know, it's funny, it's sort of just something I, I assume it's there and then, no, it's, it's, it's a lot bigger than one would think, that you have a, a couple that's been trying to sue the state and sue the central bank in particular, and that all their assets or their, their dollars are locked in Lebanon. And do you sense that these things have just begun, that there's going to be more of this later because it can't just be one couple sort of making a lot of noise. There must be hundreds of thousands, if not more, Lebanese in the diaspora that are also sort of stuck. They're not in Lebanon, but their life savings are in Lebanon. And do you sense there'll yeah. be, that there'll be more pressure on that front, that this is sort of like a, a another tool that can be used to sort of move things forward a bit? Well, I wonder if that couple had been reading the Asia Times because <laughs> I had previously written a story uh, quoting a legal expert here, a lawyer, mm. uh, who basically made the point that while de facto capital controls have been in place since the banks had an unprecedented two-week closure during the protests, yes. yeah. uh, that didn't even happen during the Civil War, as I'm told. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and probably shows you how spooked they were uh, about the situation. Mm. Uh, there has never, till now, there's no capital controls law. So while all of these things are arbitrary, yeah. the fact yeah. that people can't take out as much as they want, the fact that people who had dollar deposits can't access them, this is all just arbitrary. And, you know, banks have different ways to uh, decide who can withdraw, you know, if you have a track record, for example, of, uh, you know, being an importer, if you have a track record of paying a tuition, supposedly yeah. that's who is able to keep going with those right. uh, transfers. So there are certain guidelines, but mm -hmm. there's no hard rule. Right. Uh, and since September, uh, I'll have to uh, refer back to the piece, but I mean, Billions have gone out uh, since September. Right? Yes, absolutely. I, I one to two billion a month. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, you know that that just shows, and and you know we, the head, I think it was of um, the Biblos Bank research section was even speaking about this and saying we wanted capital controls because we have nothing to protect us. If somebody <laughs> sues you, yeah. if someone has the wherewithal to sue the bank, then they can get their money. There's nothing legally to stop them. Um, 
And so this couple in the story that I, you know, I wrote, the funny thing is they had actually, they claimed to have been convinced by a close friend working as some bank branch manager in Lebanon that they should put their money in Lebanon yeah. and everything would be fine and they would be able to take it out within that year. Uh, and they were not able to. Right. And so you have this, this is like, you know, I think they had something like 18 yeah, uh, was it 18 million eight, spread 18. out over different banks, and they were, you know, attracted by the high interest rates. Yeah, and you have also people with, you know, that had eighteen thousand dollars or right. you know eight hundred dollars who are also attracted by the high interest rates and mm -hmm. convinced. Uh, and um, you know, some people are blaming these people for being naive. Uh, when such rates are quite rare, but I think we also have to recognize that there's a huge, there was a huge faith in the banking sector. You know, That's they true. survived the Civil War. Uh, they, you know, had the appearance of doing well, and the dollar peg was maintained at all costs. But it's just the fact that there is a lawsuit that there's a there yeah. there is a couple doing something that has not happened in Lebanon, obviously, so for many reasons. So if you get your, your case in the pipeline, yeah. uh, any capital controls can't be applied retroactively. Right, so right. it's very smart to yeah. put a claim right. so that eagerly you could hope to get some of your money back. But when, when and you, I think what's happening mm -hmm. right now is anyone with the wherewithal or the connections is trying to get their dollars out. Right. And everybody else is, you know, really in deep trouble. Is that what you got a sense from when you were writing this piece that there, that there's many people doing this just sort of maybe quiet quietly that they're they're putting their cases with with knowing that this is the la maybe the last chance they can try to at least sue if they, or, the lawyer or, I spoke to Paul Morcos wouldn't put a number on it but he mm. said he had a large caseload. Okay, so like. so there is something and there. This would be people with a lot of money, though. You know, okay, you, so it's the larger accounts, right? Right. Right. I mean, if you have a smaller account, you, the lawyer fee might dissuade you. Yeah. You know, from doing this. So it's really um, this this situation really hurts the little guy. Yeah, of course, of course. But I, that's what I appreciate in your pieces and in other pieces as well that there is a focus on the the most vulnerable in Lebanon. And I, I sense that I mean, now the middle class is part of that vulnerable, huge portion of Lebanese society. That there's just sort of a very, very wealthy upper, upper class that is, that is vulnerable too, but not as exposed necessarily. And then you have that sort of widening, widening lower middle and lower class that is, that is feeling the pain the most. And I think yeah, it's, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. It's it's just uh it's really uh you know it's something I've never seen to witness the total you know an total destruction of a middle class yeah. of a country. Yeah. Um you know, this is not of course we've been reporting for years about, you know, the plight of the most vulnerable, whether it's the refugees, whether it's the domestic workers who, you know, are suffering doubly right now. Yeah. But right now we're seeing uh, the middle class, I, I, I 
can't see surviving through this. You know, people who uh, could have a pretty good standard of living, maybe even travel once a year, uh, you know, maybe even a, uh, attend uh, not the best private school, uh, but try to, some, yeah. to get ahead. Uh, that's going to be very difficult. Be and that's basically, there's two reasons. There's the crisis in Lebanon, but there's also this global recession. Uh, so there's not going to be these easy money jobs in the Gulf anymore. Yeah. And if the population is less educated, they'll be less competitive. And if they're poorer, they'll have to settle for less and be able to send home less. So it's really uh, a huge, huge change. And I don't think we've, uh, we've felt the whole implication yet. You know, it's a big tragedy in that in the 1990s, the conversation was always the middle class needs to return. And that sort of civil war generation of Lebanese that were able to leave, maybe a certain number of them returned. And there was that kind of hope always that post-war era would improve over time. And then, I mean, it never materialized. But the middle class was already vulnerable and small after the war ended. And now it's, I mean, like you said, it's, uh, it's on its way out. And that's, uh, you need that kind of, you need that middle class for any sort of, uh, for the health of any society, you need that sizable middle class. It should be the largest. And someone pointed out that you need the banks as well. You need a banking sector. Sure, of course. Get ahead, if you yeah, want to, yeah, yeah. whatever, buy a house or take out a loan, start, you know, you know, help Lebanon transition yeah. to having a productive industrial sector. People need to be able to get loans. So, uh, you know, I don't think anyone is celebrating the state of the banking sector uh and i i think it's you know it's it's really imperative that that things get moving uh yeah. if lebanon's going to be able to uh recover from this yeah uh and i it seems like there are you know there are a lot of countries that would like Lebanon to succeed, but the sanctions, yeah. uh, the use of sanctions and the increasing use of sanctions uh, in the region uh, has has an effect. It has an effect on the ability to move goods, even if it's not targeting, uh, you know, the movement of fruits and vegetables. And for example, the sanctions on Syria, yeah. uh, I think that kind of makes the support project impossible because, you know, the the Chinese, at the end of the day, uh, America, till now, is far more important for them <laughs> than any country in, mm -hmm. in this region as a trading partner. Mm -hmm. uh, so are they going to go in big uh, in Tripoli anytime soon? I don't think so. Uh, so it's, uh, there's, there's a lot going against Lebanon, but I think that most people would agree that... Uh, you know, they could do a lot better than this. I'm going to wrap it up with maybe a lighter note. Um, I'm, I'm curious about you. Never really asked you this. and uh, I'm curious about you. Oh, well. When are you coming back? <sighs> You're good. Uh, I, I'm the journalist. I should be asking you the questions. That is true. That is true. Um, <laughs> Your podcast. Yeah. 
I, I was I I came here and I got stuck in New York during COVID nineteen. I just sort of ended I, my trip back. Obviously, didn't happen in April, so I couldn't uh, fly back. And uh, I, I I'd like to be back by the end of the year, and I'd like to check out your place too. And I, I yeah, and I'm but I but I'm curious about someone like you, who showed up in Lebanon eight nine years ago, two thousand twelve. Given many opportunities to leave Lebanon and explore a different terrain in the world of journalism, and I know you mentioned earlier that you were in the Gulf for a while, but you found your way back to Lebanon. That you don't have to be there per se, but you're sticking it out, and you're you're there during a very challenging time, and you're putting your own sort of, you're you're investing in the economy, if you will, and in one in a very small individual way, but you are, you're involved in the Lebanese economy, you're part of a pub in Mina. What what keeps you in Lebanon? And why is it why is the Lebanese story sort of part of your life, if you will? What what keeps you sort of uh, in tune and what makes you stick it out in, in Lebanon? Well I have noticed that in recent years, you know, a lot of my colleagues uh, kind of made their uh, young careers uh, out here have mm. gone to the US. Uh, to cover whether it was 2016 election or mm -hmm. what's going on right now. I would personally prefer a Lebanese journalist go to the U.S. <laughs> to cover my country because <laughs> it's a little bit too close to home for me. I don't think I'd uh, is there an Is there an exchange program? You just sort of send the local to, to, to D.C. and cover, cover the news. Why, why not? <laughs> yeah, why, why not? not? No, but your I mean, your relationship they, to Lebanon. They speak English. That's true. No, but I'm curious about your relationship to Lebanon. What what has kept you there? I mean, and what what keeps you there now, N knowing that you could you can easily leave if you wanted to, but you're 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 still there, and you're writing on Lebanon and you're focusing on Lebanon. What what is it about the country that that makes you curious? I think that you know, there's of course. Uh, my mom's side of the family mm. that has Armenian background, so you have this mm. kind of affinity, you know, yeah. Yeah. and people don't treat you like an outsider uh, when they know that about you. Right. Uh, so I think there's there's definitely this uh, warmth and affection, and mm. uh, uh, you know, I uh, I still find interesting stories, and I feel like. The more I report, the more I realize how much, how little I know. Uh, mm. So mm. I feel like I'm only just starting to uh, to become what the kind of journalist I, you know, I'd like to be, which mm. is somebody who's not uh, sticking to what I know, somebody who's uh, interviewing people who aren't at the protests just as much as I'm interviewing people who are at the protests. Right. And I feel like I've learned, uh, uh, I've learned or I've decided how I want to report over years uh, of doing this. And so I feel like it's not really the time I want to leave it when I feel like I'm just starting uh, to decide how I think it should be done. For me, Lebanon, and I'm not saying this as someone from there 
or has any family connection, nothing like that, just pure subjective analysis. It's, it's the perfect place to, to write a story and to share a story. And there's so many stories happening all the time. And I, I always get drawn back to that part of the world for any story that interests me or any story I'd like to share. So it's always been, a, uh, I think, the, the perfect location. And it kind of it, it adds so much to any story. And I, I can't replicate that anywhere else. I, and I, you know what? I think yeah. also Lebanon having this middle class and not being a country where it's you know rich and poor. I mean, this is a country where you can, you know, you're going to have Lebanese friends. You're going to, uh, you can feel at home. Yeah. Uh, whereas there's a lot of countries in the region where, you know, that especially in the Gulf, uh, it's very limited. Your interactions can be with yeah. local society or um, where you might be kind of uh, elevated to a class of society uh, to the because just because you can afford it because of your purchasing power. But um, I don't know, Lebanon, you really, uh, you can, um, can really like make, make a community here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is, and uh, no, it's a, it's a, you know, without being overly romantic. I mean, the place has everything. You know, there's the, you know, everyone talks about the potential. Uh, yeah. I don't want to be cliche, uh, but you know, you can have, uh, you can have a lot here yeah. and there's a lot, uh, that Lebanon can, uh, can do. I, think. Uh, I couldn't say it better than that. I'm going to visit Aristos next time I'm in town. And, uh, I really appreciate you staying up so late to even have this conversation with me. And I know these are very painful topics. You're living through them yourself. I, since January, I've been watching them from afar. This is a very pessimistic moment, but I appreciate having voices like yours uh, shared because you've you've dedicated your life to the country in in different ways, and I, I, it's always nice to hear somebody committed to the country share their own thoughts on what's happening. So I really appreciate Excellent. that. Thank you, Allison. It'll be great to have you. Oh, cheers! cheers. To, uh, well, to yeah, the three p.m. coffee to the. 10, 10 p.m. wine. <laughs> Cheers to you. <laughs>